Welcome to the Rit Nerds Podcast, episode number 10, with tonight's hosts, Ron Burgess and Jim Kenny. Please excuse Nathan, he couldn't make it to this one. On this episode, we have a very special guest, Lieutenant Josh Burchick of the Howard County, Maryland Department of Fire and Rescue. Lieutenant Burchick has been a member of the fire service since 2003 when he began volunteering and a career firefighter since 2005. On this episode, Lieutenant Burchick will take us inside the tragic events of July 23, 2018, where firefighter Nathan Flynn was involved in a floor collapse and subsequently died of his injuries. Lieutenant Burchick was a member and leader of the Rapid Intervention Team, which successfully deployed, located, and removed firefighter Flynn. We dive into a number of different topics and down a few rabbit holes. You will want to listen to the very end. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Where any of that would happen. The department, to their credit, has been incredibly supportive. But if we, if we can go down that road, I'd like, again, I appreciate that. But uh, yeah. I think we're pretty safe. Cool. Um, okay. Yeah. So I don't know if, if you guys have are aware of, like, Josh, if you know who Ron is. Um, Ron, yeah. uh, it, do you know um, uh, the Facebook group Truck Floor Training? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, okay that's good enough so ron ron runs um uh instagram uh page called rid ops and then um he was one of the founders of the truck floor training page on on facebook okay Um, so we uh we kind of got introduced to each other all online through uh our native canadian uh nathan who isn't he can't get on here tonight or today but um so that's kind of, we, we just started doing this a few, probably about a year ago, right, Ron? And then we didn't yeah. record anything. We just started kind of having the conversations. conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the biggest thing that led us to where we are today, sorry, Jim. No, go ahead. Um, was situations like yours, you know, you were involved in an actual mayday, an actual rescue. And a lot of our questions we've had we can't really get the answers to. Um, where Project Mayday comes in, in which you really hit on in your traditions podcast thing in there, was awesome because like it's showing that the statistics that Project Mayday is putting out is actually re- being reinforced on the fire ground, you know, especially with the guy getting on the nozzle, getting uh, tangled up and having, having to be cut out and stuff like that. So, you know, we see all these, um, line of duties happen and we can't confirm how or what techniques were used and if they were effective you know so what we're teaching is it actually effective and useful and yeah, sure. uh you know through the internet like james has said uh jim has said we started asking around and the four of us found each other so this is where we're at we uh we decided on the podcast which has actually been pretty good and we're working on a small book, you know, just basic tactics of red operations, you know, from awesome. all of our experiences. So. Very cool. Yeah. And to be fair, and maybe I'm saving face a little bit. I do know RIT Ops. <laughs> um, and that's actually how I first saw um, the Rittner's podcast. Cause I was following the page. I saw the podcast through there. And um, it was like a couple weeks later after listening to one of your podcasts is when Kenny Kugel uh, reached out to me. He's like, Hey, I, I, I know a guy. Um, so yeah, yeah, good. The pages got good stuff on. I've been following it for a little while. Um, but that's awesome. You're right. Thank you. There's very little out there. Um, 
and some of the things you do see are very, I don't want to say lofty, but there are all kinds of cool tricks and tips and pieces of equipment, especially. And, um, but when I guess the rubber meets the road, I don't, I don't know how some of those really play into it. And then granted, I'm going based off of just some of the training I've done and then what I experienced, but, um, yeah, there's a ton of stuff out there. Right. Yeah. And that's, all over. that's kind of where we were, you know, I, I think all of us probably hit a point in our career where, you know, you're, when you get in and you're being taught stuff, you don't know anything. So you don't know what you don't know. So you can only, you're learning everything you can. And then you teach it to the next new guys. Right. Like, right. Right. Yeah. Um, at, at my firehouse, we always talk about like, you're either being trained or you're doing the training. If, if you're not involved with one of those, then we're not doing what we need to do as, as the firehouse, as the shift. So even the two or three year guys are teaching stuff that they've learned in those two or three years onto the rookie. And, and as a whole, we're constantly just trying to continue our education and keep our skills up. Um, but you get to this point where you start asking questions like, why do we actually do this? I know I've been taught on this skill, but is it actually the right skill? And for a lot of things, you know, EMS side, we run that stuff every day, no matter most departments, most fire departments now are integrated somehow into EMS and you're running EMS calls. So you see very quickly that there's a turnover of, well, this skill doesn't work, so we're going to change it. We're going to change some stuff. It may take some time to get people on board to, to move it, but you see this evaluation happening in the field. And then you get to fires, and unless you're at one of these you know, known fire departments that you're going to a working fire once or twice a week, the rest of us are lucky if we go to a working fire once a month or so you know, sure. through your year. And then where were you on the fire? What was your position? Did you actually get to do a lot? You know. So at the end of the day, you're not getting as much experience on the fire ground and then take that even one step further to RIT and we don't get a lot of feedback on when RIT teams have been activated for a Mayday, you know, was a RIT team on scene for the Mayday, the close calls and Project Mayday started to be some of that first feedback, which was great as it opened, I think it opened up a lot of eyes in the fire service, but absolutely talking to someone like you, Josh, who has the firsthand experience, you know, good or bad, you know, there's lessons we can all learn from that and move forward. Like Ron was saying, say, Hey, this worked well, this didn't work well. I can only speak to my experiences, but this is how, this is what we experienced. And I think it's important, you know, to, that we share those lessons because, you know, the entire goal is to still be aggressive on the fire ground and do our job, but at the same time, learn from our mistakes and, and try not to make them again, you know, or not even mistakes, just learn from lessons. What went good, what went bad, what can we replicate, what, what should we uh, make a, a five degree shift in our, you know, course or a course correction and then keep pushing forward. Um, no, yeah, absolutely. Um, I couldn't agree more. And I, I do appreciate the opportunity to talk because there's not, there's, yeah, you don't get a whole lot of spoken word with this kind of stuff. There isn't a whole lot of experience. I've been digging into NASH reports and all kinds of stuff or talking to my buddies who've been involved with things and, and we're really good at data collection, but we're not really good at getting the word out or the data collection that we need to really get into the weeds with some of this stuff. So 
uh, kudos to you guys for reaching out and finding the people and spreading the good word. So I'm glad I can be part of that. Thank you. And thank you for jumping on with us today, man. It goes both ways. We're, we're very thankful for, for you who is willing to step up and share, you know, your, your experience and, and not only share it with, you know, people close to you, but knowing that you're, this is going to go out to hopefully a lot of people. Um, and, and I know you committed to that when you put in for FDIC and, and yeah. unfortunately with everything that's happened in FDIC getting pushed to next year, mm-hmm. um, you know, that sucks. It delays some of your stuff getting out, but, you know, thankful to traditions training for picking you up and, and giving you the platform to deliver that. Because I think I know most of my friends that I work with, most of my coworkers, in in Fairfax have watched your your video and and are talking about it at lineup and sharing it with the rookies and you know not just the rookies but the older guys and just talking about it as a shift and saying hey if this happened to us what you know do we do the things that we should be doing right now and and there's you know you're you're helping affect change uh around the fire service so thank you for that. And thank you for jumping on here. Yeah, man. No, I appreciate it. It's, it's been a wild ride over the last uh, couple of weeks, ever since the presentation came out and for uh, all good stuff, got a lot of good feedback. Um, and I think for a lot of people they are like, wow, this, this really can happen. You yeah. Know, I think, I think it opened a lot of people's eyes. They're like, holy crap. You guys went through some intense stuff and they did. Like I said, I, I am one person. Um, you could ask any guy on my crew that night and they would have another spin on it. They could talk about their experience and their firsthand account. You know, I'm kind of speaking for them through the, through all this. Um, no, but the feedback has been yeah pretty incredible. So yeah, just whatever you can do to keep getting the word out and people send me pictures of the training they're getting into or the workouts they're doing now as a shift <clears throat> just coming together has been, been super cool. So that's awesome. Uh, it's, it's nice. It's been a good platform for some healthy change. That that is great. It's it's funny how um, as I was watching, and I was you know I had to watch it in chunks. You know, every you guys are both family guys, so you get a half hour of free time here and a half hour there. So right, um, uh, I finished it one night at like midnight, one o'clock in the morning, and uh, or something like that. It was pretty late. Maybe it wasn't. It felt like to me. I know the sun was down and the kids were asleep. <laughs> um, but I, you, some of the slides you put up, I'm like, oh, my God, man, that's, you know, you had quotes from uh, Mark Ripito in there about being strong. And oh, um, yeah, yeah. Is, is just like, yeah, this, I felt like uh, it's cool to see that some of the things that I've found in research and through word of mouth and, and in, in my career that, it, you know, it's it's all over the place and other people mm-hmm. are picking up the same books and the same reports and finding the same types of things with the same mentality of, of you know, this, we have a responsibility, you know, not only to the people that we serve, but also to ourselves and our families to stay healthy, stay active and train hard, you know, because you don't ever know when that is going to be put to the test. You know, every day you go to work, there is a chance that you're going to have the hardest day of your life at work. And if you have been pushing and slacking and saying, Hey, tomorrow I'll start working out again, you know, 
it's it's too late by that point. Absolutely. It was Absolutely. it was awesome to see um that second half of your presentation where you got into hey, what made us uh what what preparations were we doing that really had an effect on on this call. Um, yeah. And that drove a lot of points home. Cool. Yeah, I man, that's that's cool to hear the the whole second half of that presentation. Sometimes I get worried when I'm sitting there talking because people want to hear about like the nuts and bolts, and um, I don't mean this disrespectfully, like the cool stuff, yeah, what happened on the call, and then I get to the back half, which you know people ask me like, how the hell did you guys get out of that? And so I started like just globally taking pieces and putting it all together, and I'm thinking like, man, I'm going through this this is, you know, half the presentation now. I wonder yeah. if people are just going to zone out and get bored or, you know, that's when they tune off, you know? So, um, yeah, it's good to hear. And like you, I, yeah, I just started pulling from one reading would be get another reading to talking to this person, listen to that podcast or you rub elbows with this person. They've had that training. And, um, yeah, I'm probably like you, I'm starting to see a lot of these the similar books or similar names, similar quotes, programming, training ideas start to come together now. Um, and it really is a multifaceted thing. There isn't one easy, clean answer for any of this. You got to put a lot of pieces together. Um, yeah. And, I was, and like I said in the presentation, you can take so many of those things and break them out into their own training program. So to have uh, just to globally talk about a couple of those, um, yeah, there's a lot going on for sure. Yeah, and, and I think uh, you know, in a little while it'd be good to get down into down into those rabbit holes a little bit. Um yeah, yeah. but I, I like what you one of the things you just said, man, where people so often are looking for that one thing, mm-hmm. you know, like, hey, uh what was the piece of equipment you used? And all those one things are good to know, but that's not like if, if you're out of shape and you're not, you know, you're not healthy and you're not training in your gear and you're not acclimated to that stressful environment, that one piece of equipment's not going to matter. It does not matter. You know, um, <laughs> right. And I think, I think it was Colonel Grossman. Um, one of his quotes is, is one of my favorite things. I can't remember the exact quote, but he talks about uh, the, the hardware versus the software, you know, everyone's interested in the hardware, you know, what new computer do you have? What new tech do you have? And in reality, it's all about the software, which is our mental programming and, and, um, our, uh, our mental capabilities and our physical capabilities. What have we programmed ourselves to be able to do with the hardware that we're given, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I usually, I, I, I talk like it's, it's mental, emotional, and physical and, each of those three pieces have to be held up and you start losing out on one of those three pieces. You know, you're, you've got a weak link in that, uh, in that chain. So yeah, I totally agree. Well, the, the ironic thing is real, real quick before we get started, really. Um, the ironic thing is like 15 minutes into the, your video, I, I recognize that this was almost the exact fire we had at work. Um, hmm. It was a long lay about a 300 foot stretch the fire was in a void space um, that went up into two stories, like kind of like around the stairs and where a bunch of rooms meet. Um, so like the fire was almost identical except for yours was well, more well involved and you guys had the main day, but like 
now I'm sitting here and I'm like, this could have misfired all day long. So I'm definitely going to be sending that out to my shift and the, um, some of the other shifts on, on the job because it, it was almost identical. It was pretty crazy. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, it doesn't matter what department you're from. It can be big city. There's, I'm sure, there's got to be, you know, parallels that you can draw from it, even if it's not a, a mansion. You know, I mean, you could warehouses, row homes, whatever. There's, <clears throat> there's definitely pieces to be taken from it that anybody can relate to in this job. Um, it, but in the, when you do start getting down into the weeds, like, yeah, it, it's uncanny how many people can relate to what we went through. Yeah, right. there's, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from that. Yeah, we're just fortunate that, you know, we we made it out and held up our end and uh, yeah, people can learn from it. It's, 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 yeah, it's wild. Well, before we jump into that, how will we jump into you? Uh, yeah. You know, give us your little bio and how you got in, introduced into the fire service and how you kind of got hooked on uh, the uh, the podcast we're talking about today, so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I'm a Maryland guy, born and bred. Uh, most of my family's from central Maryland and haven't really ventured too far away from there. Um, when I was in high school, got big into things like shooting sports. Um, I was in 4-H, so raised animals like pigs and lambs and all kinds of good stuff. Um, but it, <laughs> uh, you would take those like personality tests in high school, the guidance counselors would kind of push like, Hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I thought I wanted to play baseball. And then when that didn't happen, um, I thought I was going to have to do something with agriculture, the outdoors. And, um, always in those tests, it would come up that um, firefighter, you know, public service somehow would come up and they're like, that's kind of neat. I never really played into, uh, to what I was doing or whatever plans I had at the time. But, um, during high school I had a couple of events that, got me thinking like, maybe I could get into this. Um, had a couple friends, separate incidents get um, injured pretty badly. Um, whether it be at a house party, one was a four wheeling accident. One was a fall from a second floor. Um, and pretty, got pretty jammed up both of them. Um, and I started to realize I was the one person that could remain calm when all my friends around me were freaking out. As soon as blood started getting tossed around, um, they kind of melted down. And I was, my mom was a nurse. I don't, I'm the oldest of the four boys. I don't know, maybe we were used to all the blood and guts, but um, I was, I was thinking, you know, maybe, maybe I could do something along this line. So I've always been, I was always interested in the medical side of things anyway. So I kind of got in the fire department originally for the EMS stuff. And I don't usually tell a whole lot of people that story, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I got in, um, started volunteering at the local firehouse right down the street, which is Clarksville, which ends up where the, uh, where the fire ended up taking place. But it was a couple miles from my house and, um, slower department, you know, they're not, they're not very busy at all. You know, call or two a day at, at most. Um, so got into the volunteering side of things, I actually missed my EMT class, the registration date. So that's how I got into the fire side of things. And <laughs> as soon as I got a little taste of fire, man, I didn't go back. I uh, loved it. So um, but I did, I was like, let me, let me keep up with this. So I got, um, into the paramedic program in, at Howard community college. And just a couple months later out of high school, um, very fortunate that I just happened to get the call for Howard County right. um, and put the paramedic thing on hold just so I could finish the Academy. And then once I got into the, yeah, even deeper into the fire side of things, I just, I loved it. 
And um, so I wanted that to be my primary thing. Obviously in, in Howard and a lot of Central Maryland, you gotta have EMT and a bunch of other stuff. Um, but did the six month academy and a good friend of mine in the academy was a member at uh, 30, 33 in Prince George's County. He's like, hey man, let's go take a field trip. <laughs> so from uh, 2005 until pretty much I got engaged in 2010, um, I was pretty active down there. And then as soon as the engagement and wife and then kids came after that, that, that went downhill hard. Um, but yeah, I spent, spent a good five active years down in, uh, in PG as well. So yeah, That's I got great, in the fire real service. Time. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's like little Ramadi down there. Um, at times <laughs> it's a, it's a blast. Um, but I got the rub elbows with some of the, the coolest people. Um, and just really, you know, you get, tossed into the fire, no pun intended, really quickly down there. Um, but yeah, learned a ton and definitely things I take with me to this day. And Howard County, you know, we're, we're not very well known. We're one of the smallest counties out there in Maryland, but um, we have some just awesome people that work for the, work for the department. And I, I've been very fortunate to rub elbows with some of those guys as well when I was coming up as a recruit. And they really took care of me. They were paying it forward. Um, so between the two, I've had I've been very fortunate to have um, just some really educated guys who who've been on the job for a while that have some wild experiences of their own that uh, mentored me early on in my career. And uh, yeah, I just I kept running. So yeah, I've, I've been in since two thousand three. I started volunteering, and then two thousand five, I yeah got hired and been uh, yeah hammering in Howard County ever since. Nice. So, oh yeah, those are cliff notes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jim, you want to bring up the uh, so the yeah, call itself? Well, um, yeah, we can get right into it if you if you guys want to. Um, that's that's fine. Um, lose my place here for a second. So. Uh, See, we're not very professional. <laughs> we no, have our good. No, we have like, our cliff notes, but that's <laughs> um, no, all good. Yeah, I made a hard stop. No, it's all right. It uh, it's fine. Um, well, that's cool, man. I uh, I think uh, I don't think we live very far from each other, actually. Um, yeah, you're being, yeah. ten minutes down the road. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's funny. I had a couple friends ride over at 33 as well. Uh, not as much as you did, um, mm -hmm. back in those days. I think, uh, one of my good friends from Fairfax, he spent a little bit of time over there, but he joined after he was married. So it was, uh, okay. you said real hard yeah, to, sure. to get the time. Um, I, I was talking with, uh, a couple guys at work the other day and some of the younger guys and telling them like, you know, a lot of my experience, and I'm sure saying it sounds like you too, Josh, where a lot of our experiences didn't come straight from where we work. You know, I, I gained mm -hmm. a lot of my uh, knowledge and lessons learned from other people, from mentors, from the older guys, uh, from my volunteer house. Um, and I'm at the other end of Maryland, uh, a couple counties up um, in Baltimore County. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, yeah it, was, it was great you know, come off of work and go there for another 24 hours and hang yeah. out and, you know, ride in the engines and the heavy rescue. Um, 
and then go back to work and drive the ambulance for a couple of days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Same. But uh, same thing as you, man. As soon as um, I got married, we had we spent uh, one year after I got married still in Lutherville, and then um, my wife is a teacher in Frederick, so we uh, we moved out here. And as soon as we basically unloaded that uh, pod in the driveway it was that was almost it it's very rare I get out there I try and get out there like once a month but it's hard with the kids and life in general absolutely uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't trade those years for almost anything because I learned a lot of lessons uh, growing up with in the volunteer service and not not just there but even um, back home uh, up in New York but I think Ron you, you volunteer too don't you yeah, I was an ambulance driver for 10 years, as, as my partner put it. Um, and those 10 years really helped me, you know, solidify a lot of things, you know, even simple things of talking about, you know, the books and stuff we've read, you know, where uh, firefighter fatigue and all that stuff comes into play. Like I have a better understanding thanks to all those years on the ambulance and, and thanks to my partner that I had. He was really good. Um, but I, my all my experience came from my volunteer house. You know, we used to run, I'd say, two to three Rick calls a month, it seemed like, for a good year and a half, two years. Oh. And, uh, you know, it slowed down, but everybody seems to be slowing down up this way anyways. Um, the towns around us that used to burn all the time, nobody's really burning anymore. So um, work hasn't been very active due to the COVID crap. So, mm -hmm. you know. I'm in the same boat. Taking take the experience where I can get it. Sometimes I got to create it on my own through training or talking with you guys. So, you know, that's why we're here. We're here to share that info. So, if you want to jump into um, your call, your experience, and uh, why we're here today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how how in depth do you want to get? Um, well, it, <laughs> it it depends on how in depth you want to get. Um. You know, it's uh, like you said earlier, man, this is one of the, the report itself that Howard County put out is one of the most in-depth line of duty death reports I've ever read. Um, yeah. And they hit concepts and ideas and topics that yeah. I've never, that have never been discussed in that matter, you know? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Which was really refreshing to see that you know and i know the report no matter who writes it where it comes from there's always going to be things that don't get put in or mm -hmm. you know get skipped over you just can't capture every little thing yeah um but it was really refreshing reading that uh instead of reading niosh you know i, I niosh is good in what they do but I think they're they're so they're generic sometimes, and you don't get yeah you don't get the in depth uh, stuff that you know your your department put out. Um, I think you know for me it leaves me just I guess you know if you want to start from the top I know you did on on your webinar you kind of took us down the down the road of the uh, the dispatch and everything. Um, <clears throat> But I think, uh, I mean, some things that uh, would be good to hear. I think, uh, you know, hmm, I'm trying to find the right well, words. <laughs> yeah, I can give <laughs> it. I mean, 
Well, why don't we start off and, and just give a quick background of the, the call itself? Yeah. And then yeah, we'll, sure. we'll go from there. Yeah. So we are, um, so we're talking, yeah, it's almost a month away, the anniversary. So July of 2018 uh, to Sunday going into a Monday, uh, just a pretty calm shift. And we had a big storm come through the area. Um, 150 or sorry yeah probably 1 1 a.m big storm comes through and a bunch of lightning strikes in the area uh, one of the lightning strikes produced 10 times more energy than any other lightning strikes in the area and happened to hit a big mature oak tree travel the ground hit a propane tank um, underground propane tank ran the service lines and then basically had a um, gas CSST line in the basement of the home that started the fire so from this lightning strike, this thing is eaten away in the basement, a um, little finger of flame that they're, our fire marshals were able to recreate and actually find. And <clears throat> that started corroding a lot of the, uh, the basement, but because it was, it's a 8,400 square foot home. So large home. Um, it was a hydrogen area, but this one side street that it was on, um, it was ended up being a almost 1300 foot lay just to get water. So this thing is, uh, has time to eat and no, none of the residents in the home could smell it for almost half an hour. So as this thing is just eating away in the basement, um, the electric system's starting to degrade. Um, I think the kid in the house starts to hear crackling on the intercom. So he, he knows something's going on. He wakes up, smells the smoke, gets the family out and they, they call it in. So because it's just smoking a residence where we're at, we, we do a local box. So it's two engines, a truck, a battalion and ambulance. So they send everybody down the road. And once they get on scene, their smoke showing, um, they could smell it before they even got there and they upgrade to the full box. So that kind of brings our unit into the picture. Um, I'm on engine 71. So downtown Columbia, and we're the uh, first engine up on the upgrade. So we're essentially the third new engine. And just growing up in that area, um, I knew one of the better ways to access some water. So I come in from a slightly different area, but there's a little bit of confusion with myself and the command officer. Um, just general confusion from uh, just the onset of the scene of where units are positioning, not a whole lot of information getting out, um, you know, what the water supply plans are going to be. And just from it being a local box on attack channel and then upgrading and it being 1 a.m., all that front end information that people get out over the radio, we're now playing catch up with. You know, the whole back half of this alarm that's coming, we're missing out on a lot of that. And there's some notes in the MDT when we're going down the road that we can read through, but still not, not enough to paint the picture that we need coming down the road. Um, but long story short, we end up uh, laying in from a hydrant. We end up dumping our, our entire thousand foot bed and we came up 300 feet short. Uh, my driver and the driver of engine 101 did an awesome job uh, completing the lay and never ended up losing water. So uh, we get there on scene. Uh, the command officer tells us to go inside Alpha. We're getting ready to book in. And he's like, you know what? Why don't you guys just hold up? You know, things, are, things are really escalating right now. Can't find the fire. So hold up right there. And while we're on scene on site alpha, um, I just take my thermal imaging camera. I take a peek through this front door and I'm not really seeing anything. There's no pressurized uh, wave currents. I'm not seeing anything that's indicative to me that we got anything crazy working. 
um, the, the tile and the subflooring was so thick. We found out later that all the fire that was underneath this thing was hidden because there was such an insulating layer of tile and, and subflooring that architects wouldn't have even picked it up anyway. Um, so we get um, held on side alpha on deck. So we're just hanging out there at the front door, not really seeing much. So while that, all that was going on, the first couple units, 101 and 51 and Tower 10, they're kind of shuffling from the upper grade on the house, going down to the basement level and kind of jockeying back and forth, pulling lines, like trying to find this fire. Because this thing's deep sea, they don't know where it is. And to get a little bit better picture, um, it is 8,400 square feet when you combine the main level plus the finished basement. When you get to side Charlie, it kind of makes like a wide V shape. Um, the house does if you're looking top down and the backside when you start on like the Bravo Charlie corner your single story and then as you continue around side Charlie going to side Delta um, it drops down so you got a great change and then you have access to the basement um, main level now is up a story and then there's technically three stories but there's no windows from side Charlie that you can see. So people keep calling it out as two stories. Um, there's confusion when people are saying we're repositioning from the basement to this upper side Charlie access. The great change, um, the way the house is situated doesn't make a lot of sense. So even with uh, the battalion aide taking pictures and showing the command officer, there's still a lot of confusion. Um, so when people are saying, hey, now we're making access in this door, now we're making access in that door, for a lot of incoming units, it's until you get there and put your own eyes on it, you don't really realize what's going on. And it's hard to, you know, get that picture in your mind. So um, there's that brown smoke that's telling you that it's in the structure, just gently pushing out of the eaves. So it's also getting volume pushed. So to me, seeing that as I'm pulling in, I'm like, this thing's deep seated. It's in the structure and um, we still haven't been able to find it. Um, as the units went from that basement level inside Charlie where they found smoke conditions, but there's no heat. The basement itself is only 1100 of square feet uh, finished space. Like I'm not really seeing much. So the tower 10 officer controls the door. They go back up to, they're about to go back up to the upper grade of side Charlie by the Bravo Charlie corner. And they, uh, the engine 101 officer says, Hey, I got fire showing um, through this living room door. And looking back, it's probably where the fire had finally broken through the basement, gotten into the main level, and that's what they see. So 101 deploys another line off of engine 5-1, and they go in through side Charlie at the main grade level for the upper, the upper uh, side of the grade and go in through the, uh, the kitchen. Okay, uh, forgive me, I can't remember if it was the kitchen or the laundry room when you look at the schematics, but they're going in that upper grade. And uh, firefighter Nate Flynn, uh, falls into a, a hole that was had already been created from the fire and falls in and that's when the mayday was sounded so mayday gets sounded by engine 101 and gets out a quick mayday the information to come after that says you know he's one he, he fell into the basement um, firefighter flynn gives out his own mayday but it happened to be on bravo too so and we're going through some radio just, changes just yeah, so the, the listeners know, what, what is Bravo 2 versus the channel you guys were on? Uh, yeah, so 
Yeah, we're on Bravo One, which is our main tech channel for the bigger incidents. Bravo Two is a channel we don't really use on fireground tech channels, but we had just gone through some radio changes and we had a feature turned on where it didn't matter what channel you were on, you could have messed with every single button on there, but once you power your radio back on from the last call you went on, it was gonna be on that channel. Okay. So Alpha 2 for us is our main ops channel for EMS runs and the smaller wrecks, fire alarms, things like that. So I'm totally assuming because, and just because I've done it so many times when we were operating on that radio system, mm -hmm. Um, he may have run a medical call earlier in that day, he had it on alpha two. And when he was switching over for the box alarm at 1am switched over the Bravo tag channel, you know, Bravo zone and hadn't toggled back to go to Bravo one. Okay. So we have since turned that feature off. Um, like I said, we had not operate on that system. We had, we had just gotten this new radio system where that was a feature. And then we're now no longer using at least that feature. And we've had some changes come from that, which is good. But um, so he was on Bravo too when he gave out his mayday. Um, you could tell um, it was a good who, what, where, and it was very consistent with how we train and how he has trained. He got good information out, but because it was on Bravo too, and because the engine 101 officer was giving her mayday on Bravo one, that information never got out, and our community, excuse me, our communication center didn't even pick it up. Okay. Um, we didn't, we didn't know it until much later, you know, days later. So, um, obviously an issue, but we have since, um, at least overcome that with some radio programming changes, but all the information that we had gotten at that point was that he was in the basement, he had fallen down into a hole and we just kind of knew that we were going to be part of that RID operation. Uh, the truck company that we're housed with, we're a dual company house. They had just been assigned writ prior to the mayday, and we were only physically on scene for one minute and 42 seconds, 145, depending on which timestamp you look at. So from the time we got that 300-foot attack line inside Alpha and we're sitting there told the stage, we had less than two minutes to, to get any tools. We thought, you know, we we're going to be doing engine operations. So the truck company that we were with, they go around one side of the structure, Bravo side, said we're going to go around the Delta side and we're going to put this picture together. Once we get on the backside, we, um, we had been formally assigned to RIT. So 71, which I'm on, and then truck seven, the other side of the house. We all meet on side Charlie at the lower basement level. And um, we were told to hold up because there are other reports of missing firefighters. Um, we weren't sure at the time where the 101 officer was. There was a couple of firefighters off of engine 51 for a few minutes that weren't accounted for. Um, so before we were allowed to go in, we were told to hold up because we didn't know who was missing, where they were. So it's just that a little bit of chaos that comes right after a, uh, a mayday gets sounded. So we're, we're being held up from that. Um, once we were given the green light to go in, the PAR reports were cleared. We knew that it was just Nathan Flynn that had gone down, you know, 101 Lyman, and we got the green light. So we go in, we enter through the lower finished part of the basement and immediately are hit with zero visibility conditions. No real heat, but floor to ceiling, we can't see anything. And it's a really tarry, sooty, just nasty smoke. So we're, uh, we're kind of sliding on some tile and we're trying to find our way around. Um, we come to one set of steps that go back up to the main level. The trucker goes up and sweeps and 
um, the barman was like, I, I feel like my arm is going to melt off of me. Um, he said, there's no way we can even go this way. And I really don't think he's here. So he comes back down we continue searching up and we're going through like a fireplace room. We're going through like a big finished bar. Um, I mean, you can imagine just the size and scale of being in an 84 square foot mansion. Um, I mean, it was a nice house, well-appointed house, but we're, we're having to search through that. So keep in mind, our hose line has now gone from side alpha all the way around the Delta side of the structure through the side Charlie basement. And now we're making our way from Charlie all the way back to alpha. So we basically hit the alpha side wall. We've searched all the way up now. And one of the crew members has found a, another set of steps. Um, we were actually just talking the other day. He was using his thermal imaging camera that we have integrated into our MSA SCBA. Mm -hmm. And he was using that and he's, he saw the steps in the doorway and the thing just turned white. He's like, there's something going on here. So our line goes up and um, said, Hey, we got a set of steps. So myself and uh, my backup guy uh, follow the line in. And so it's the captain of the truck, the lineman, myself and my backup guy and the truck crew stacked up with us. Um, as soon as we enter the space, um, what we realized, what we found out later was that we had just entered in um, almost 1000 square foot, four to five foot tall crawl space. It was above the basement level, but it was sitting underneath of the main level. So kind of this offset level in this home. Um, never had no idea what we were going into. Um, I could see a little bit of catering equipment, um, just Costco size you know, utensils and things for, for catering large parties. Um, there are table and, and chairs in there for 60 plus people, all kinds of holiday decorations and things are just jam packed tight. Um, and we just, again, are zero visibility conditions and we're hit with just a wall of heat that's just driving us to our knees. So Lyman is able to start putting some things out and I can hear Nate's pass device in front of us. Um, and I always have joked in training, whenever you hear a pass device going off, you think it's some guy who's caught, you know, caught up in conversation and he, he doesn't realize that his pass device is going off. Um, I'm very good at turn, tuning that out. But for some reason that night, I zeroed right in on it. Well, that, it, it's funny you bring that topic up because it, it's a serious topic. I think on the fire ground, it's a serious problem where we become too accustomed to hearing the pass alarms go off. Absolutely. Um, I know we discussed it at work. I mean, this is something telling us that something bad is happening. And the 90% of the reactions you, you see on a fire ground is to ignore it. And it, that's just because it, it happens so often, you know, right. mm -hmm. forget to control their own. Um, I know with our air packs, we have the newer Scott air packs and they move their sensor from down in the waist to the middle of the pack. And you, I, I've been on our rowing machine in my pack and on the air bike in my pack, and it will activate while I'm rowing or biking on the air bike oh, wow. so, or walking. Um, wow. So the, the sensitivity is off and that's only made the problem even worse. Sure. Um, so the fact that you were able to fight that in your head, man, that is amazing. And I think it goes to show not only um, your concentration level, but also the focus you had and your ability to fight off that fight or flight 
type reaction when you're in that stressful environment, right? You, you still are engaging your brain in this thing. You're still thinking through the problems and you're like, I can only imagine in that situation, we're looking for something like the pass alarm to go off. So this is, this is a key indicator here that we're, we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, a different switch was definitely flipped that night. It's kind of like in sports, it's the difference between a, a training mindset versus a competition mindset. You know, it's not always the exact same speed or intensity, but as soon as you get on the competition floor, um, you kind of hit a different gear. And I think it's kind of what right. happened that night as well. Um, so I said, hey, Cap, I hear his pass device. He's right here in front of us. And as we're getting ready to um, – go towards the, his, his pass device and go towards that noise. Um, I feel wires just pull across my chest and I remember thinking, this is not good, but, um, I need to get to Nate. And if I were to, I can probably, you know, do like a swim technique and get underneath of it. I didn't feel like I was in that much danger, but I could feel all that pull across me. But then I thought if I have to pull back, pull him back through here, I'm going to be exhausted and it could get worse or now I have to manage getting him underneath of that, maybe with somebody else. So I pulled my cutters out, which I keep in my chest pocket, came out super clean and immediately just started going to work. Um, a couple snips, got that out of the way. What, uh, what kind of cutters do you carry? I use the electrician grade, um, O style cable cutter, like the 10 inch cutters. Okay. Um, and those are the only types I'll ever use. Um, and we can go down that rabbit hole in a minute about yeah. you know why I like those, but um, you know as that's yeah, real, yeah yeah please, real quick before we we move on at this point in the incident, how many people did you guys have in essentially your crew, if you will? Like, I understand that it's a truck team and then you, but how many yeah. total? Yeah yeah good question. Um, so we have um, four and four typically assigned to the units. So, but the driver stayed out. I was the engine driver's out. A truck driver is gathering tools on side Charlie and helping us just maintain a cache of equipment since we didn't really have much. Um, and then it was basically the six of us remaining on the engine in the truck. And I grabbed another firefighter. It was one of my recruit the guys who just got off recruit status, who was detailed to station five that night. So he was the first in medic unit. Um, and I saw him on side, Charlie, he's a great guy. And I was like, you're coming with me. So we had seven people that night, um, inside at this point, basically. Okay. Um, yeah. So I, I clip away and I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to slide forward here and try to get to Nate with the backup guy. And as soon as I do, um, I said, I look over to my one buddy, uh, Drini, Joey and he's uh I said hey man you, this is getting pretty bad in here you got to knock this down like the heat's heat's going up I'm starting to see pockets of fire all around me um it's kind of pushing my knees even more and he's like um I, I joke that I want you to be so calm that in a terrible situation you call one of your friends and officers uh bro <laughs> he's like bro yeah <laughs> I cannot put this fire out I'm stuck and the nozzle stuck and I noticed I had, it was a blessing and a curse that the fire was kicking up. Um, I was able to kind of see what was going on and he's hunched over the nozzle. Right. And the nozzle, the bale itself had gotten wires wrapped all around it and he, he can't even open the nozzle to put any fire out. So 
Um, just keep working, start clipping him away. And he gets freed, the nozzle gets freed. He starts, you know, starting to knock things down. And by opening the nozzle back up and knocks the captain's helmet off and the captain, I could see him starting to turn and twist. And I could see the wire start to wrap around his back and basically encircle his torso. So like, man, we just can't catch a break right now. Um, so again, we're in a, we're in a, we're in a bunker, right? I mean, that's block wall. We have wooden members above us. Um, this thing's rocking. It's only four to five feet tall. And so um, I was able to clip some of the wiring that was circling his torso. So he gets freed and slides out of the way. And um, uh, one of the truck firefighters, Mun Yuen, he slides up and is like, dude, I, I got you. I can keep working on this. So he's, he's just managing the mess that had dropped down on top of us. Um, and also is helping clear our exit path. So uh, Joey's able to knock everything down. So once that happens, um, my backup firefighter, Andy Hoffman, um, he was like a caged tiger, man. He was like, he didn't understand what was going on. I don't think he realized we were in the entanglement. So he didn't realize, he just thought we were kind of like, you know, what, what's going on? What are you guys doing? Once that was all freed, he slid up. He, he got to Nate first, um, had his uh, buddy breathing line out. He was ready to do, to work that air management if, if need be. So he had the line out. Um, he was getting ready to give air. He checked his BA. He had his face piece on, and he still had air in his in his cylinder. So he's like, "All right, if all that's going on, I'm not going to mess with this right now because he at least has air." Um, he was face down, kind of in a little bit of rubble, and he repositioned him so he's on his back, and that's about when I got to him. Um, I knew we were going to have to start pulling, so I just dropped my tools right then and there to free my hands, and. Um, we both just tried to start, started, excuse me, we both try to start pulling and he doesn't go anywhere. He doesn't budge. So I said, Hey Andy, let's, let's do a three count. One, two, three, pull, one, two, three, pull. And then we start making progress. So we start pulling him back. We just had this little alley, you know, trail of stuff to get through, um, with just storage materials on either side of us, you know, fire still kicking and we make our way back to the entrance of the crawl space where we got into. So once we got back to the top of the steps, we hand them off to the, to the truck crew and to the barman. He gets them down the rest of the way of the steps um, and out into the basement. And before I move there, there's a couple points I forgot to make. Um, one being that the first water on the fire at any, up until this point was done by uh, 71 was done by Joey Alessandrini. Um, so this fire has been burning for well over an hour now, and that's the first water that had been applied um, at any point in the incident. So pretty, pretty advanced fire. Um, and so as there, and I also, right before that happened, right before we stood up to get Nate, I was worried about flashover. And we've been on fires, and I'm sure you guys can relate. You're up on the second floor, maybe you're trying to get up and back, and there's just a sea of firefighters stuck on the steps just waiting or tons of hose line. And I remember thinking if this place flashes on us right now, we're going to have nowhere to bail. So I remember telling the truck, I was like, just please single stack on the steps. We got to bail. I want room to, I don't want to hit, I don't wanna hit your bodies. I want to have room to actually bail down. I was like, dude, I got you. We're good. Um, so yeah, we come out, we pass Nate off to the truck crew. They bring him down the steps and out into the main portion of the basement. As soon as I hit the quick step, question. Yeah. Yep. 
not trying to interrupt you, your flow here. Um, no, no. Trying to get a, a grasp on it. Did you guys do a conversion at all, or was it just grab and go style? It was grab and go. It was grab okay. and go. Yeah. And, and about how many stairs did you take to get out of the crawl space? I think it was eight. It was like a half step or a half set of stairs. So it was about eight steps. Okay. Yeah. And it was about 30 feet from where he was in the structure to get to the top of those steps. So about a 30 foot drag is what we're estimating. And then about an eight, about eight steps to get down. And then it was probably with all the angles and turns, oh man, probably 75 feet to get okay. from side alpha back to side Charlie, give or take. Yeah, just kind of putting, yeah, putting some yeah. distance in perspective here. Because right, um, that's, that's one of the things we always wonder, you know, is like, what are we actually encountering and how far are we actually dragging, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so you yeah, guys he, pass off to the truck? Yeah, so we passed off to the truck. Um, as soon as we hit the steps, almost all simultaneously, our bell started ringing. Um, so that was the first time I had paid attention to my air consumption. <laughs> um, <laughs> to be quite honest, um, I maybe it's a bad habit. I don't pay attention to my heads up display. Um, I, I it's an old habit of mine. Like I'll wipe my face mask and I'll look down and I'll actually lift up my ICM and see how much I have on the gauge. Yep. I do that periodically, um, but all the other external signs that are throwing signals at me, I'm not paying attention to. But um, our bell started ringing once we got out of the space. I'm thinking, man, I really hope nothing else happens. Um, now, cause now we're in the back third of our air supply, but I knew I felt okay because we we're out of the worst of it and we had a fairly clear shot to get back out. So we had that going for us. Um, did when you guys started removal, mm -hmm. um, did you leave the nozzle up in that area or did you leave your nozzleman up there flowing water to help control that as, as things started to, to move out? Uh, Nozelman stayed there. He he worked on fire suppression. I think he had his hand on Nate for you know a couple seconds, but he did a great job. He's, he was very disciplined and very deliberate. And like, no, this is my job. I need to make this situation better. Um, so he he stayed and manned his position. He was probably one of the last guys him and the captain out of that crawl space, and then um, and then backed the line back out with him and took it with us. So you guys backed the line all the way out. You didn't just drop and go. Yeah, from what I remember, yeah, we had the line with us. That's yeah. okay. Awesome. Now, yeah, was that your intention to take the line with you, or was that already being put into place as they were trying to move back and forth and locate where the that sub basement actually was? Yeah, it was our intention. I'll be honest, not necessarily mine. It was the lineman and the backup guy. Um, they had the right. charged three hundred foot line on side alpha when I went around to do half that 360, so myself and the truck captain could put the 360s together, basically, you know, our one easy together. Mm -hmm. um, the, those two guys had the charged 300 foot attack line redeployed all the way around that side of the mansion at the back door, um, at that back uh, basement door. Um, as soon as I finished my 360, my portion of it. So I turned around, I'm getting ready to call them over. Like, yeah, this is the best spot for line redeployment. I turn around, they're right there. <laughs> Those guys um, are moving. Yeah, they, they're awesome. Yeah, they did a fantastic job deploying that line. And yeah, they had it with us the whole time. The backup guy um, who I said was, uh, who I pulled one of my guys off of the medic unit. Um, he did a great job. Um, just 
doing his backup duties, managing every inch of line, managing the curves, managing furniture. Um, I think we had about 15, 10 to 15 feet of line left before we would have run out is wow. what we're estimating. So not much left. Yeah. Um, and as we're making it out of the basement, um, the truck crew were most of the way out. Um, and I remember I tried to pick Nate back up and I try to drag and I don't go anywhere. I'm so physically exhausted that I didn't budge. Uh, fortunately for us, they had a second rib team in place and they worked on uh, clearing furniture. They set up a spotlight at the entrance to the door we went in, which helped as a beacon of light. It kind of gave us a, a, just a straight shot to work towards so we didn't have to manage any of that. And um, uh, some of the members from Engine 6-1 came in. Um, he's like, dude, I gotcha. I'll get him out the rest of the way. So he took him out, um, handed him off to uh, Nate's own crew, his medic unit, paramedic 105. And they immediately went to work stripping him down and uh, performing ALS care on him. So we came out, we stripped down. Um, we're just so physically and mentally exhausted at this point. Um, we all kind of huddled, said a quick prayer. And from then on out, we just, it was a waiting game. Um, and I, I said in the uh, traditions training presentation, like I could get into a couple hours worth of talking of just from that point, talking about the next 24, 48 hours, the next week of dealing with the line of duty stuff. But um, uh, there's a lot of things are going to come up that you would never think about. But those are, uh, that's the very brief version of the incident. Um, you know, the, their crew did everything they could. My driver, who's a paramedic, actually was in the back of the medic unit at one point trying to help out. They had a ton of hands. Um, we have fantastic paramedics in our county. Um, but he, uh, you know, we unfortunately couldn't save him. So he was, Nate Flynn was posthumously promoted to the rank of lieutenant, and um, he was our first career line of duty death for Howard County. Yeah, there's uh, the tradition training really opened up some perspectives on my side, especially when you started talking about your family and the get together um, afterwards, and then you broke down in the kitchen. That kind of hit home for me. So, yeah. um, one of the other big things that really hit home for me, and we normally don't hear this that very often, is you referred to this as a semi successful rescue uh, or incident. And yeah. um, I know a lot of people you know, unless you're really pulling somebody out alive, you know, they're not saying it was successful at all. I'd like to hear your thoughts on why you feel it's semi-successful. Yeah, um, that's a good question. And I know that's talking, I know that the, the, if the captain were here right now, he is, uh, he's since retired. He was, he already had his drop date set before this call. So um, he, he retired about 18 months later. Um, there were some people that were initially saying that it was um, unsuccessful because he didn't make it out alive. Um, and I totally understand that concept and I won't try to argue with that. I won't, and I still won't try to argue that point. Um, all the data will point to that he had already passed before we even got to him. So when the guys at seven, to include myself are sitting there trying to money night quarterback ourselves and try to think, man, what could we do to, to save seconds here or improve this or how do, could we gotten to him quicker? Um, according to the ISRB and talking to those guys, like there's, there's really not much we could have done with the environment that he was in and the time that he was in there. Um, 
he he had passed before you know i don't want to say long before we got to him but he he had uh, already passed and i guess the reason i say semi-successful is that um i don't mean to speak ill of anybody's talents or experience but there are a lot of firefighters when tasked with that and what we went through um it's a tough scenario there's no other way to put it and i'm not i don't want to mince words it's i think I think tough scenario is an understatement. I think this is the toughest, if this is one of, if not the toughest scenarios that a firefighter can be placed with on the fire ground. You are not only called to rescue uh, a person, you're called to rescue a coworker, a family friend, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in a brother, sister, you know, uh, one of our own. Yeah. And and you can see this even on the training ground when you run writ and mayday scenarios, the stress level in people go through the roof. Absolutely. Just training on this topic um, in the right type of training environment. So I don't, I, I think, man, I think um, don't, uh, don't downplay it. This is this, you, you the skill levels around the fire service are up and down the board. And I think listening to you, you know, putting a face to uh, your face and, and, you know, I know there were a lot of other people that you mentioned on, on your cruise Mm -hmm. that made this uh, that semi successful um, uh, is a writ deployment, that successful writ deployment. That's what I would call it. Um, It is not just it's not just you, but to sit here and having read the report last year and and then to be able to sit here and talk with you and see your face and hear your voice discuss not only the topics of the report but the first person view of it um, puts a lot more uh, i guess lends credence to you know how tough this scenario really is, and I think when you talk about it because things went so well because of how you guys were prepared for this, it seems like it might not have been that hard. But I think (laughs) when the average firefighter would be put in the same scenario, I don't think they would have the same outcome you had. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would have to agree with you, man. I got, like you said, I wouldn't argue with anyone involved with this fire personally on how they view it. But um, from an outsider having, uh, heard about other calls and read about other line of duty deaths and close calls and then reading and, and hearing you speak about it. I would completely agree with you being semi, what you would say semi successful. And I yeah. think that's because like you're saying, you have to break this down into the, the writ deployment separated a little bit from the fire ground itself. And then sure. Uh, from the traumatic incident that Nate suffered, you know, mm-hmm. there, it, whatever happened to Nate in this incident was out of your control. That was the bang moment. You know, all yeah. you could control is the the left of bang leading up to it. And then your actions after it. And when you go to review and grade yourself on this, you know, obviously, and, and, you know, you guys, this is something like you mentioned in the traditions training thing. Um, you're going to play this in your head for the rest of your life. It's just, it's the way it is. It is. And it's, it's going to be that way. Um, 
you're going to think that there are seconds here or there or minutes that you might have been able to gain if you did something different or if you had tried uh, this versus that. But from, I think, at least my perspective, man, I don't think anything could have um, – I think you did an, a phenomenal job in, in the situation you were placed in. Um, and I think that Definitely. you did far superior to what uh, a lot of us would do having been put in the same situation. We, I think we all strive to do and achieve the same things that you guys were able to do. Um, but I don't know that the average firefighter would be able to do that. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that. We were, um, we were talking around the dinner table the other night where, um, you know, we had a couple guys that were detailed that night or off on leave. And um, you could have dropped one of those other guys in the scenario. And I, I trust every of the, any one of those ability to uphold what we did that night. Um, just super fortunate. That I get to work with the, uh, the, the crew that I do. Um, they all held up their end of the bargain. And I guess another, another little fact to, uh, put all this into perspective is by the time we made it out of that structure with Nate, they're estimating within 60 to 120 seconds after we exited the uh, crawl space we were in collapsed. So if the backup guy hadn't held up his end of the bargain and gotten his line when he did, he mismanaged one turn. Um, If the truck crew didn't have their ticks on them and they were kind of leading the search, you know, didn't expedite that or took a wrong turn. Um, the linemen didn't do a good job putting the fire out and keeping things in check for us. You know, I could, you could sit there and break this apart in so many different ways. We could have easily added 60 seconds or more to this operation. And instead of there being one, there could have been five, six, seven of us um, in that crawl space when it had collapsed. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, there's that. Um, so I guess that's, that's why I personally use semi-successful because I won't try to argue with anybody saying, well, no, he didn't make it out. It's not successful. But as far as the writ operation is concerned, um, we, we all made it out safe and unscathed and none of my guys got hurt. We were able to bring Nate out. Um, and man, there's not a good way to say this, but I'm just going to say it. Like we gave uh, his wife, Celeste, um, a funeral where there, we didn't have to wait for body recovery. Um, you know, you think of guys who've gone through those things like Worcester or, or other places where it was a, it's a body recovery operation. Um, and that just physically and mentally and emotionally is going to affect you in different ways. Um, so there's that. Um, and like I said, I'm not trying to talk up like, you know, what we did for Celeste. She's an amazing woman. Um, but she, uh, but yeah, we, we overcame a lot of obstacles that night and it went right back to our training and our trust with each other. So yeah, I think that's why I use the word semi-successful because we, we made it out. We were, we were not hurt and we were actually able to, um, overcome all those obstacles and bring them out with us. Yeah, it's tremendous. Just, just, especially your nozzle man to have the patience to sit there and say, Hey, I'm jammed up. I'm not panicking, but I need help. And to like still focus on his job and, and not deviate to the, um, 
the moth to the flame effect, you know, of there's the uh, there's Nate on the ground, or you know something else has to get done. He he stayed at his job and, and performed it to the best he could that night, and that that shows up 100% to your guys' training and, and the dedication you guys have put in. So yeah, oh absolutely. I had no idea that he was even entangled until I started talking to him. He was super calm. And I'm sure you guys experience in training. It doesn't take much to have a, a firefighter start to thrash no. in an environment in a training environment. You know, it doesn't take much for firefighters who haven't experienced that to freak out. Um, it's so the fact that he kept his cool and then continued to do his job and didn't abandon it to do the, to the rescue bit. It just speaks to his character. Absolutely. We, we ran a study a few years ago at work and uh, we're being fortunate to have the resources to put enough resources out of service to do a full scale uh, evolution, let alone uh, writ evolution. And the, what we noticed a lot when we, we got into, and we used the four collapses as, as our scenario, we based it off of Sacramento's close call a few mm -hmm. years ago where they had their first, uh, first nozzle team through the door to go through the floor. Okay. Um, and when our, a lot of times when our nozzle, when an engine company would make it to the basement area, looking for the firefighters, we would have the nozzle firefighter. They're the first ones to hear the pass alarm. Mm -hmm. And it was to a room to their right off the hallway as they came down the hallway. I would say at least 50% of the time the nozzle got dropped and they went straight to the pass alarm. Yeah. Now, yeah. They didn't have any feedback in that moment to say, other than theatrical smoke, they had no heat. Sure. You know, yeah. They had no orange to, to shoot at. But when it comes to discipline on the line, um, it was 50%. And, and we can accredit that to a lot of things, I think. It's not just one thing. Uh, one of them being our most inexperienced members are typically in the, that bucket firefighter position and mm -hmm. then get put on the nozzle. Um, you know, and if the officer wasn't close enough to them to stop it from happening right away, or even the officer might not have made that decision and said, Hey, drop the line, come over here. We need to package the firefighter. Um, you know, I think that's like Ron said that the, the discipline involved there is tremendous. And, and I think, uh, that person deserves some some kudos for for staying on the line and keeping their con i think your entire crew man <laughs> yeah. everyone involved in this the it, the calmness that you portray when the whole world is falling apart around you um is is it's an intense calmness is what i feel when mm -hmm. you talk about this that everybody just fell right into their job and, yeah. and it's one of the, the questions I kind of have noted down here is, and it, it just wrote one word, it, it's flexibility. And what I mean by that is we train so much, I think, on having this big plan for the RIT team when you get deployed. Like, you're the officer, you're going to do this. You're the search firefighter, you're going to do this. You're the air firefighter, you're going to do this. I'm sure you guys have sat down and discussed that in the past. If you, Hey, we're, when we get put as the red engine on a fire, we're going to do whatever it is that you guys plan on how you plan on deploying. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't sound like you had any time to discuss this before you went in. You had 
you know, by the time you got the line back there and you're trying to figure out what the hell is going on and you get the green light, it's like, go green is go. Yeah. Right. Um, but the fact that you and the crew members just fell into, um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of the OODA loop and the Boyd cycle and mm -hmm. the observation is key. You know, there's tasks that need to get done and, if we're all performing our own little OODA loops, then it's easy to go, this is getting done, this is what's not getting done, I'm going to fill the gap here. And that flexibility that you're talking about where uh, the guys just kind of like found what wasn't getting done and did it. You know, there wasn't yeah, right. a lot of arguing about, hey, I'm the air firefighter, get out of my way, I need to get up there. Right, um, yeah. It's just like, what's the next task? who's doing it, who's not doing something, and then just working, just working and getting the shit done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as, as the engine lieutenant, it's my job to, to set expectations. Um, and I think we had a lot of those set and in place just from training and whatever else. But it's also that dichotomy. Like I can't, I need to be, I can't be inflexible to what's going on. And the fact that I was, I've been able to work with a lot of those guys for many years, um, largely played into our success. So the fact that I knew exactly what the capabilities were of all these guys, but they had the experience to be able to roll with the punches. You know, I, I shouldn't have to bark a whole lot of orders and I don't have to, especially with these guys, man, they're just incredible. Um, so very little information has to be shared. Uh, the one guy, the barman who helped bring him out, um, Carlos Brown, he's got just a little over 20 years in the fire service. And he, one of the biggest takeaways from him was when he heard, we got the green light to go in. It wasn't like, I'm not like some quarterback yelling at people like, all right, you do this and you do that. It was, he said, the only thing you heard was a bunch of people clip into their regulators. You hear them pop, breathe in and pop the seal. and that air exchange start to happen on your SCBA and everybody filed in. Not a single word had to be spoken. I didn't have to say anything. 20 year guy didn't have to say anything. The captain didn't have to say anything. We all knew our job. And that just comes from one trusting each other. I mean, that's, you can't understate that. But then just the training evolutions we did at work and knowing what we're all gonna do and kind of having some of those sets and reps built in, but also those expectations built in, um, that, that was there. Uh, I'm also a big, I, I totally nerd out on like survival reading Yeah. and, um, you know, deep survival being one of them. And there's so many else out there, but absolutely, um, it does just a great job of saying, if you allow all these traits of the environment to come at you all at once, you're going to fail. So it's people who are able to pick them apart and have those small actionable goals to work towards. Those are the people who make it out of life and death situations. And I think we, we kind of fit the bill that night. If we, were, if we were to allow all that information to come in at us and have it overwhelm our senses, yeah, it could have been very different. But like, okay, we have this thing going on right now. We have our ultimate goal, but we have this one thing going on right now of flashover conditions. Manage that. The entanglement. All right, now we manage that. And um, it also, I think, helps to prop you up and show those little successes and, and kind of build you up a little bit so you can keep moving on. Oh, and I, I think that's huge in a, in a survival mindset like that because that's, 
in essence that we were also doing that we had a rip operation but we're also trying to survive on our own so uh, just I, having I, those small optional goals helped i I'm, I'm glad you said that because I, I, to me that goes back to what we were talking about a little while ago with the software versus the hardware yeah and um i think i think you mentioned this in the the webinar that you guys have howard county does the iff fgs program Yes. And you're a student and instructor in that program. Yes. And yeah. we, we started that same program a few years ago in Fairfax. Um, yeah. Awesome. And we we've taken that and we've been fortunate to be able to put up until the COVID recruit class that just graduated um, yeah. every recruit class for the last four years through or five years through that program. Um, That's awesome. And, and it's, it's been incredible. One of the things that, um, and then building on top of that program, um, having another uh, day in the classroom where, you know, hearing you talk reinforces this to me that, again, we want to learn all these little tips and tricks and stuff and, and how to work entanglements. And, and these things are all very important. They're the physical skill sets of written survival. But I think too often we skip over the mental skill sets of written mm -hmm. survival and managing that stress level. And there's, there is a lot of information out there. Like you mentioned deep survival and um, one of my other uh, two, I'll lean over uh, two books on survival that I love are one's called the survivors club and the other one's called survival psychology. They've both Very cool. um, reinforced a lot of the same things that Gonzalez talks about in deep survival. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, the mental skill set. And we started, we adapted this from, um, I think it was from something we pulled off the history channel about the brain, uh, okay. called the, the big four. Mm -hmm. Um, but it fits perfect. Right. And Grossman teaches in on combat, uh, combat breathing or pattern breathing yep. to help control your heart rate. Well, the big four is, um, positive mental mindset and mm -hmm. deep survival is all over that. Absolutely. Um, goal setting and segmenting, which again, mm -hmm. deep survival, you just mentioned it. If you watch the Sacramento close call, uh, the firefighter there, I believe his name is Alex. He, the way he talks, you can hear it in his voice, you know, one step at a time up the ladder and you know, uh, damn it. I did squats yesterday. My legs are dead. Um, <laughs> Uh, and that allows you, like you just said, to have those little successes, which helps maintain number one, which is the positive mental mindset, you know, the yeah. positive self-talk, it all ties in the goal. And then, um, visualization, which for us in our world goes two ways, you know, the visualization in practice helps you accomplish the skill. It gives you some mental rehearsal, but like you said, you're in zero visibility. You know, this is that environment. And there, there's a lot of arguing I see going on on Facebook these days about if you're training with a blackout shield on, then you're wrong because it's not realistic because it's zero vis and you never, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But <laughs> yeah, I'll argue that all day. <laughs> the, my, my opinion is there's a time and place for a lot of different things in training and zero visibility, smoke shields, whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. blackout shields have a place in training. Absolutely. And this is why, you know, you get into this worst case scenario where your visibility comes and goes 
you know, up to a couple inches every few minutes, mm -hmm. um, you're basically zero viz and you need to be able to visualize your equipment, your atmosphere. You have to build that mental picture um, and visualizing success as well, mm -hmm. you know, and then the last one being pattern breathing to help keep your heart rate down and just listening to you talk. I hear those, the big four in your words and it's, it's encouraging um, having taken a step, you know, at work a few years ago to start teaching this and hoping that we are on the right path. And then to hear like you talk about it and some of the other people that we've seen um, in these not so much similar environments, but close calls hit these points. It's, it's encouraging to, to see like, you know, we really do as a fire service need to spend some time talking and teaching the mental skill sets along with the physical skill sets. Are you mentally prepared for this environment? And do you have a set of skills to work through to help keep your brain engaged in the battle as you're moving in there? Absolutely. And just a little bit on the smoke shields or like visibility shields, like if for nothing else, it's going to make your gross motor skills that much better. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'll argue that point all day, but, um, and <clears throat> I said it, I think it was in the webinar, uh, Mahia, he's a Croatian dude who his whole thing was the flow theory. And it's a lot of those same principles. Um, I just picked up his book. I just happened to be reading some of his, um, some of his research papers where I was pulling some information from that, but that's another good one. Um, what, just that, what that, but, that? um, Man, I'm not even going to try to spell his name. There's like uh, 30 different cylinder, <laughs> 30 different <laughs> letters. Um, if you type in flow theory, it'll be in there. It's actually, um, I'll pull it out. I just got the book. I, I bought like, I literally had half a dozen books come through Amazon <laughs> on porch the other day. To actually dig into them. Um, I'll send that to you. Um, I think it is like flow state or something. Uh, he's got like four different books out though. Leadership Under Fire. Um has a great reading list. I know it's in there. So yeah. I'll, I'll make sure to send you the, the name of it. Um, you know, jumping back into some of the, the little things we, you said earlier that uh, with the cutters, um, mm -hmm. yeah. you, you're a fan of the O cutters for life at this point. And I, I yeah. can only assume that uh, because you had a, a success with them on this call that reinforced uh, the product to you. Yeah. Um, can you, can you go a little deeper on that? Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> it definitely started with the FGS program. They, they recommended it as well as some others, but um, it started a little bit before that. <clears throat> um, and even before that I had Lyman's pliers. I was like, well, let me get wire cutters and like some type of wrench for shutting off gas stuff. Like I'll have a two in one tool. That'll be cool. Yeah. Yep. Um, and through training, I'm like, these are not the best. Um, and from what I've seen, when, especially when you get electrician grade, that is what the pros are literally using every day. Yeah. So why shouldn't we be adapting that into our, into our fire service culture? So um, I'll spend the 50 bucks on a good pair of like Klein cutters or whatever. Oh, yeah. um, so <clears throat> definitely started there. I like the O cutters because of the, overlapping that the blades have so you're it's just like our hydraulic tools the o cutters you have the shearing forces where they're overlapping each other so 
you have greater torque that can be applied. And you can also pull them into that concave portion, much like O-cutters for your extrication tools. They're overlapping each other, so you get better shearing. And then you have all the torque in the bottom of that like fulcrum point. So you just have a ton more torque with your hands. Um, whereas somebody is using like Lyman's pliers or, uh, or dikes um, or simple wire cutters like strippers, um, these are dead ending, these blades are dead ending on each other. So you have less torque. Um, I've seen wires actually get pushed out because the blades are meeting each other. Now you're creating a V where it's going to slide out of it, where it compared to the shearing strength where they're overlapping each other. Um, let's see what else. There's a couple other things. Oh, and some of the ones, um, some of the fire service branded ones, and I'm not trying to speak ill of anybody's company, but you have the ones that have like the spanner wrenches on them. So it's that O style cutter that I like. I, I'm assuming it's just a different metal because I've been in commercial structures where we're training and we might have some metal, metal wrap conduit or some heavier duty Romex and my, or the electrician grade cable cutters will cut through that like butter and those you got to wear it out and you got to hit it from a couple different angles to get it down. So, yeah. um, I don't know if it's a different grade metal or what, but. They're, they're the weight of a boat anchor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They've got it, it drives me nuts. It's, uh, you yeah. know, a few things on that point, you know, we try and build these all in one tools in the fire service and they typically are all in nothing. Right. At the end right. of the day, yeah. uh, they weigh like a boat anchor, you know, and then, um, you know, the metal being used, especially in cutters, you know, we talked a lot just just now about the software, but the hardware is important. And yeah. if you're going to carry a tool, you know, <coughs> is it, is it, is it the best in that piece? You know, I know that um, people have their, their back and forth and, and I know that they can argue against the O cutters as well. And I've heard some of those arguments. I, I'm with you. I carry O cutters right now. Mm -hmm. um they're klein o cutters you know like you said the professionals use them they're they're electrician grade and they do cost a little more but they last a lot longer and they will i've seen o cutters um we good and bad um to the the survival program and the rip program you know one thing that they teach and that we picked up and push and and i push uh whenever i do a class on this is like if you're not letting the students cut the wire, then, then we're wrong. Mm -hmm. and, right. and people are like, well, it takes too much time. It's too expensive. Like those are the sacrifices that as instructors we need to make because I watch um, people go like, okay, just take the wire cutters and put them to the wire and pretend like you're cutting them. And then, then don't like the, we are putting so much negative imprint in that student's yeah. head right now. Yeah. I don't like that. Um, or, or, uh, like when I went through recruit school, we weren't allowed to carry any tools until the very last day when they would talk to you about some stuff to put in your pockets. But to that point, every time you went through entanglements, it was always a swim maneuver mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, one or two techniques we were taught. You have zero experience using those tools in any type of stress, in any type of environment. And for the first maybe three or four years of my career, I never used them in a, in a training environment. It Same. wasn't until later and looking into like, Hey, you know, and this is a rabbit hole topic, but 
how are we teaching our students? How are we teaching our recruits? Is it to their benefit or is it to the instructor's benefit because it's cheaper and easier, you know? Absolutely. Um, there's some things that yes, we can do cheaper and easier and they, the quality of training stays high. And there's some things that we need to invest our time and money into and, and you know, it's harder, but it's definitely well worth it when you get the right output from the, from the recruit or the student. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. And like you said, that negative imprinting, I've, I've conducted training when I was younger, where um, I think I even used an example in the presentation where um, I'm on the wrong radio channel. It's, I'm not on a channel or like I was on our wrench channel for just like talk around. Mm-hmm. So you don't get the chirp and the feedback when you key up. Yeah. And my firefighters are sitting there waiting to get out messages in like these training mayday environments. And I realized that I'm imprinting this into their system now. And then, and then we saw started to see it out in the field where they're doing things with their radios that they shouldn't be doing. I'm like, yep. I am, I'm messing up. And so I have to change. And so Wait. I'll call communications and block out uh, a further down tack channel. Like, Hey, can we borrow Delta one for the next hour? Yeah. So we can actually get that that feedback built into there. Absolutely. System. The chirp, the, the push to talk chirp is, yep. is, is important. And then so is, um, Oh man, I just had it on my, Oh, so our Academy is, we call it, it's basically labeled as station seven, four Oh seven. So the units, whenever they're training, they're saying like engine four Oh seven. Yeah. They practice all their maydays as engine four Oh seven. So when they come out, we have records, like we have it in recordings of um, they're assigned to a unit and it might be training, it might be real, but we have them recorded where they're calling, they're on engine 413, let's say, and they're calling their mayday for engine 407 because they've done it a hundred times. Yeah, yeah. So we started putting that differently to them in, in their schools where when it's mayday training every morning, they may be assigned to a different unit, an actual named unit that we have in the field and it just gets them thinking that hey today i'm on this because when they graduate you know they're sent all over the place you know and some days you could be at multiple different engine companies throughout (laughs) the day depending on who's on vacation or sick leave yeah right um and that's that's really important uh is you know locating and naming the the firefighter that you're looking for is is a huge part of the problem you know so huge part of the solution to the problem mm-hmm. um i got one more question for i got a lot of questions for you but i got one more question for you <laughs> then, I, then i'll let ron take a couple turns yeah cool um <clears throat> you guys deployed with the hose line and you you said it wasn't exactly on your mind yet but your crew got it to the back door like as you were putting your mental game together your mental mm-hmm. plan together do you feel like if you did not take, what do you think the outcome would have been had you not deployed with a hose line to this, this RIT deployment? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think I've been asked that question. Um, <clears throat> I've definitely been a part of a lot of Mayday RIT training where a hose line is nowhere part of the focus. Um, and I think that if you're in a situation that will allow it, um, man, it, it saved us that night. I mean, I said at one point, yeah, it, it was definitely a blessing and a curse to have the fire kick up and at points to be able to see the wire at certain times um, when we're sitting there in the entanglement. But when we only had one to two minutes, 
before that space collapsed. I can only, I can, you know, I can only assume that that would have been fast tracked without having that hose line. Um, the conditions were already driving us to our knees. So, um, and if for nothing else, that was our, in some cases, our lifeline back out. Had we have gotten in a bad situation where, you know, we needed to search our way back out, things were really kicking off, you know, that was in place. I say in training that you see a lot of factors come back to an engine company coming off the hose line. I feel like truck companies do a really great job because they're forced to room map when they go in. Um, engine companies were mapping, but we have that lifeline of the hose line going in there. So it's a common thread in your messes and line of duties when they come off that hose line. It's uh, for some people, that's what created that game over situation. So uh, we need to do a better job with mapping. Uh, I'm going kind of getting sidetracked a little bit, but I think for a multitude of reasons, if the situation dictates it, it you can have a hose line with you. Um, it, it totally saved our ass that night. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And then just having that extra feedback of now I have a lifeline in place that this is my way out. Um, yeah, I, it was, it was definitely a win-win for us that night. Yeah. Awesome. We go back and forth on, 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 uh, the topics of having a hose line dedicated to the RIT team on here all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, me for one my my department we just never train with it um we figure there's other hose lines on the fire ground and either they're going to keep put water on the fire and doing their thing and we're going to focus on ours so it's definitely something after talking about this that i'm going to try to get adapted into our training because it, even if we don't take it with us just having somebody nearby that we could take from um just in case because like you yeah, said, just you know, you, it, right? you don't know if you need it. So, well, just like you said, with uh, you had fifty percent of your personnel in that one in that one uh, training scenario come off the hose line. The nozzleman came off. You know that. What's to say that won't happen in a real situation if the crew isn't as disciplined? So, if you have people coming off that hose line in a bad situation. And now you're the routine that's deployed. You're thinking to yourself, oh, there's, our, there's hose lines in there. They should be doing what they're supposed to be doing. But, you know, by all accounts, that may not be happening. And, you know, hey, 50% of the time, you know, that may, that may very well happen. So your hose line could be the make or break at that point. Right. Ron is probably tired of hearing me say some of this stuff. <laughs> um, but uh, so, you know, everything that we talk about in our whole I guess, perspectives on the fire ground come from our experiences, right? Sure. Um, and what we've been taught, whether taught or learned on our own, um, you know, being a member of Lutherville in Baltimore County, we experienced the line of duty death a few years ago. And mm -hmm. that was my first, you know, wake up moment. I, I was not on the fire ground that night. I was working overtime in Fairfax and uh, by the time I made it back to Lutherville, the incident had unfolded and we went down to the hospital to pick up um, Mark and escort him down to uh, the ME's office. Mm -hmm. So my involvement was strictly after the fact. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> listening to my friends talk about the fire ground, um, we were so confused what had happened on that fire and when adam st john and the atf stepped in with the fire modeling that solved 
it didn't solve anything, but it, it really showed us like, Hey, this is what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it explained, it made sense in my head. And that started my questioning of what I've been taught up to that point, which was if you're the RIT team, you need to be ready to deploy with uh, air pack and rope and, and I'm like, that sounds great, but that was only intended after we started training for RIT on the Phoenix scenario, which was lost and running out of air firefighters. What would have happened on our line of duty death if a RIT team tried to deploy? You know, and th- that whole incident, there's a lot of things that went bad early on and it was the domino whole domino effect <laughs> kind of tied in with that Swiss cheese effect that, that you guys mentioned in your report. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was sitting back thinking from like the strategic level of what would have really made a difference here. And it would have only been water for that scenario. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They were turned around a little bit and not they Mark, when he first called his mayday, he called it from the opposite side of the apartment than what they were on. But without water, you're not going to make it to that compartment that was flashed over. And that started my chain of thinking uh, for a few years. And why are we not talking about this in RIT? And as I moved into our training office at work, I was able to push that thinking into some of the scenarios we were running to get some actual data. Um, And it, it boils down for me to, on the fire ground, in the IDLH, there's only a few things that will kill us. Um, and, and one of them being cardiac arrest, right? And, mm-hmm. and I kind of discuss that and then toss it away because there's not something you're going to change on the RIT team to have the, di- the outcome different for that, other than getting them out quickly and performing good CPR in a timely fashion. Sure. Um, the other three are immediate trauma, and, and then air and fire. Those are the yeah. two real big things. So coming back to RIT, meaning to, you know, intervene on the fire ground and stop that bad thing from happening. It's not just rescue. Like we're there to stop the bad shit from happening. What do we need to be able to do that? And air and water come into the, the solution uh, sets for me. And that was, you know, we've been pushing at work that if our initial writ is an engine company. So if we're getting four engines on a firebox, 25% of our fire flow is getting put into writ. And if we're not ready to flow water at any one time, then you know that we're, to, we're basically just showing up as manpower. Um, and then if a mayday happens to an engine company like it did with you guys, essentially your engine company is out of service. So you're down to 50% of your fire flow capability. And, and, you know, when you do the math, what I was doing, we, we, we have three special services on a firebox. When you turn an engine into a recon style writ, you end up with four special service teams and two engine companies fighting fire. So you have, you know, if, if your mayday happened to an engine company, so you're, you're looking at, you've taken away 50% of your fire flow, firefighting capability. And one of your number one objectives is to is- extinguish the fire. So are our resources actually matching our goals? Sure. And that was, 
And we've also had a number of more collapses in Fairfax, and I was trying to get the actual number. My guesstimate right now, if I'm correct, I think in the last four years, we've put nine people through the floor. Wow. Um, we've been extremely lucky that on the majority of those, and every one of those, they either fell into a compartment that was not on fire because the fire was burning in the, sub, in the floor structure itself, Okay. Not in the compartment below, or it was burning in the compartment and it burned away the floor and they fell through a floor in between the floor joists into an unburned compartment, or they fell into a compartment of fire that had already been extinguished. Yeah. Um, That's incredible. And, and that right? is one is just luck, and two is the other side of we're trying very hard to push and teach that it's it's so important to find that lowest level of fire and and begin your attack there um and it, it's hard because you get you have so little time when you show up on the fire ground to make your decisions and and push in you know there's so many things working against you the mm -hmm. the people in the front yard screaming at you about their house and their family um, you know, the pressure that some people have because their other engine companies or other crews are so close to them that you, you know, your first and second engines are essentially showing up at the same time to most of your fires. Yeah. All of that time pressure being put on you. Um, you don't always have the time to, to fix or make up for that one missed calculated decision of, of making your attack somewhere. Um, and then we also try and push also like the flexibility we were talking about. Hey, if you, the first line went here and the third engine notices that there's fire here and it's below them, then get that line in place and start making your attack down there. Absolutely. I think we're, we're at the point where we literally have to change culture. Like with what you said, where we have to start from the lowest point and work our way up. Um, I know for Howard County, we're in this we have been doing pretty well, but there's always room for improvement. And we're actually going through the process now of revising all of our general orders, our uh, operational like fire ground general orders. Mm -hmm. And we'll see what it comes with that. Um, but it wasn't too long after this fire, we were uh, covering one firehouse in more of a rural area and we ran into another County and um, it was a mix of um, career people that were volunteering and a mix of just volunteers and not speaking ill of them, they just, I didn't think they had the sets and wraps and they went right in over top of a basement fire. And they were even kind of joking, like, that was really spongy. And our crew <laughs> went around back and said, hey, you, we called it out, like, you guys need to get off this main floor. You have fire underneath of you. Um, and it was a small, it was a small rancher. Like, it, it would have taken 20 seconds to do a 360 in this joint. Yeah. And very, and the, the homeowner was even on the scene saying, hey, I think it's in the basement. So you have all these cues and we're just, we're not, sometimes we're our own worst enemy. Um, yeah. And I, I'll tell you straight up, I'm guilty. You know, 10 years ago in the fire service, I, I would have been the guy like, I got to get in the front door before anybody else. Um, and we can call it, you know, I'll say maturing, but um, <laughs> yeah, just uh, yeah, air quotes, spending a little bit more time and realizing, let me take that extra 10 seconds to, get a better 360 yeah 
let me really pay attention. Let me put my hand on the, the, the lookout windows to see if there's any heat behind them. Let me use my camera, um, I, get a little bit better picture. And we just have to change the culture. I, I couldn't agree more. And dude, it, it happened to me just a couple of weeks ago. Um, I had been off on leave one for COVID. I uh, caught it early on. And oh, then um, two, we had uh, our second child was born. Our, our son was born in April. So I was off on FMLA. And the first day back, it's a decently busy day. We're seven or eight calls in and we get a first due box at dinner time. Um, and it's in a neighborhood that has a mix of old brick Cape Cods and um, ranchers. And some uh, don't have basements and some do. Every indicator I had from the front and so from side delta alpha and bravo every indicator i had was there's no basement and mm -hmm. i have a stockade fence around the entire back of the house that i can't find a gate to in a timely fashion yeah so i made the decision that hey we know the fires in the alpha quadrant i've got no indicators from these three sides that there is a basement um or that there's anything burning below us so we, uh, you know, I make my uh, radio reports and we push in side alpha and um, it's a small bedroom fire, a lot of smoke. I think the, the fire vented itself out in the house and then a window broke out and um, that was when the neighbors called it. So it wasn't very well advanced in the house, a couple squirts of water and it goes out. And from inside, I called command and asked them to verify that there was no basement. And afterwards, um, I got a little talking to about not getting to side Charlie. Yeah. And I, you know, I had, um, Mike's, they were exactly that. They're my excuses to why I didn't get the back to the backside. I could have tried harder. I should have asked the second engine that was right behind us in the front to, Hey, can you go take a peek at side Charlie? Cause there, there was a basement, but it wasn't a full house basement. It was this weird, like dugout root cellar that was in the back. Yeah. Uh, corner of the house now there's nothing down there but you know that just shows me you know it wakes and I account it to a number of things and, and it was my error um, you know first day back from a couple months off you're rusty you haven't been in the game and uh, it just goes to prove back to myself that like you need to stay in the game you need to uh, get back into um practicing even those little things on on an ems call you know what would you do if this was a house fire okay gotta get out take a lap all those just getting that mental skill set or rehearsal back um I grease that groove yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah i know um, Josh, you hit on, yeah go ahead you hit, you hit, you hit on changing culture um you know that's that's one of the one one of the things jim and i talked about last night is if you were to sit down and run your ARIT class today, mm -hmm. would there be anything you changed different compared to what a normal basic RIT class involved? Oh man, that's a heavy one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think for me, yeah, man, it's a tough one. I can go down so many different rabbit holes. I think the, <laughs> the first thing I would probably do to hopefully change culture would be to add that stress inoculation bit where we get to the point to where we're stressing people out. And I don't want to say throw the kitchen sink at them because there are always going to be other people. I, I hated it when you're 
you're moving through something, you're managing things well, and they're like, all right, now a plane crashes into the building and now four houses are on fire. Like it's not realistic. But right. getting to the point to where, and then also the first thing that you do when you get on scene and they throw the worst thing imaginable at you. Realistic, but for the people who haven't built in those sets and reps, they just completely shut down. And I've seen it, like I've just, I've been on shift first and hey, we're going to get into the training. And the fear of being in the spotlight where they've had an officer that would belittle them um, breaks them down. So to start small, kind of what we discussed is that crawl, walk, run training. Um, be very dedicated to that. Let's build some, some success into your, into your skill set. And we're going to start small. And all right, the second you get that right in your, your that's commonplace, we're going to keep building off that and we're going to stretch out a little bit more. Now we're going to take your vision away. Hey, you did really good there. Now we're going to have all your gear on, you're breathing air, we're taking your vision away. Now I'm going to get your heart rate up and you got to do this. So I'm going to make you run around the building with hose and do some push-ups and some sledge swings on a tire. And we're going to go through this evolution again. Um, and just getting the heart rate up and the breathing rate up, especially for things like BA drills, um, completely changes the game. Uh, and we've been hitting that really hard where I work. Um, it's, it's definitely opened eyes, but it's made us so much stronger. And it's cool to see some of the skill sets built in now where we're in other training environments, an issue will happen. And my guys are going right to the problem solving while their heart rate's up and while their breathing rate's up. And it's, now it's become second nature in a good way. Um, so yeah, that would probably be one of the biggest things I would instill is the, the stress inoculation bit, getting people stressed out. I put everything through the vein of the first time they experience something should not be on the fire ground in a real situation. And right. I know there's some things that we are going to have to make it like a drama. Uh, you know, we're going to have to pretend with certain things. Like it, it just is what it is, but make it as realistic as possible. Take as many or cut, just try to cut as few corners as possible. And the, yeah, go through some type of skill set that, that I want you to experience this now. So that way when you are stressed in a real situation, it's not the first time you have to do this. So that's, that's how I've been trying to reframe a lot of my training here recently with the shift and um, things that we've been discussing. So I think globally, kind of zooming out, that'd probably be one of the big things. That's some great info. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, you brought some of that in your tradition, tradi traditions trainings um, show there. Uh, for those people, that, those people that are listening right now, if you go on to YouTube, uh, you search up TT Howard County LODD 519 of 2020, uh, Josh really goes into um, the whole stress mindset and um, that fight or flight syndrome type stuff towards the end of his presentation. So if you guys get a chance to check that out, it's, it's really some great information. We'll, um, we'll put a link to that also in the show notes and on the notes for uh, the YouTube. So if you guys are listening, uh, you should be able to get that link in the, in the notes. If not, just reach out to us and we'll get it to you. Cause yeah, cool. yeah it's um, one of the, my favorite thing. One of the things I really liked was you were able to get the graph of your air supply and your yeah. breathing rate. Um, and it was incredible to be able to see that your air consumption was a smooth curve down there was no spikes 
um, yeah. which really goes and, you know, we, we talk about all kinds of different training, but that's specifically to, you know, you're trying, you're training your heart rate, you're training, <laughs> you're doing hard training, right? Yeah. You're not doing, um, a couple, you know, 30 minutes on the treadmill and the walk run, you're doing intense training that mimics the fire ground effort. Um, and you can see that by looking at the curve and seeing that in, in one of the most stressful things that we could ever be asked to do, your breathing rate straight stayed almost the same through the entire thing. And it wasn't like a rapid, rapid breathing rate. It was a fairly smooth breathing rate. Yeah. Yeah, that was um, that was really cool to be able to pull that data. And when we pulled it for myself and the backup guy, uh, Andy Hoffman, it was we're like, okay, this looks really cool. Um, I think this is good. <laughs> what does this compare? So we started pulling other BA reports of um, a couple people that were on scene, and then with Project Mayday being able to pull uh, that one graph from somebody who experienced their own Mayday situation, like, oh. And talking to our own BA techs um, who have their hands on these things every day, they're like, what, what's, the, what's more common? And it was the spikes and the dramatic uh, decline in air consumption. That's the most common thing. What you saw out of uh, Andy and I is not common. And I'm not here trying to talk, talk ourselves up. I, I hope it motivates people now to actually have real data and to see that thing in real time under real situations and real scenarios it's like, man, I gotta, I gotta get my ass in the gym. Um, right. And I've been a CrossFit coach since 2011. I've been doing it since 2007. And if CrossFit's not your thing, that's fine. But doing the high intensity exercise, I could bore you to death all day with the amount of research out there that just talks about the efficacy. Um, and that is going to be more reminiscent of a hard fire round scenario. You know, the marathon runners, like, I, like I've said in the presentation, like they're, if you're working out, my hat's off to you. You're, you're doing, you're getting off the couch, you're doing something. Um, but if you want to be successful in this profession, you got to take it that one step further. And not only is it going to potentially save your life, and not only are you going to feel better, you're going to work better, but it's the mental struggle of knowing what your outer limits are. So now you're mentally you know, more adaptable to, to handle those situations, knowing how to deal with the heat stress and physical stress and the high heart rate. It's amazing to see some people come into the gym and the first time they might be incredibly deconditioned. And my, again, my hat's off them for stepping foot and getting out of their comfort zone. But the second their heart rate gets up a little bit, kind of like in our job, they've never, they've never experienced that before. They think they're dying. Like people, and it's, it's, it's kind of funny to see and it. Um, I'm not trying to be a jerk, but um, you got to stress yourself out a little bit. You got to get your heart rate up. You have to know what that feels like. And then over time, obviously we were becoming stronger. We're becoming faster. You want to be able to move large loads, long distances, and you need to be able to do it quickly. And that's kind of the essence of high intensity training and CrossFit and by and large is what we do in our jobs too. We, we only have a very finite amount of air and we need to accomplish a lot of work really hard in that short amount of time frame. So, and we're in our gear. So our, our vision is limited. Our mobility is limited because of our gear and the weight we have to carry. You know, if, if you've got good gear and you don't carry anything in your pockets, what, 30, 40, 50 pounds, if you're carrying 
a three section 28 and a pike pole and a halligan bar and all your stuff you're looking at you know over 100 pounds potentially yeah so uh, over to carry to manage over 100 pounds additional on your own frame you have to do that quickly and then that's just getting that's just a ticket to the game yeah you know? right and once you get into that environment superheated no visibility um yeah it messes with you I'm trying to find the research now. One of the guys on the ISRB uh, mentioned it. It's, it's out of the military. If I can find it, I'll send it to you guys. But there was some research that suggested that um, <clears throat> when you are in a superheated environment like the one we were in, flashover conditions, you know, you got rooms off, whatever the case may be, the only thing that will delineate whether or not you're going to manage your breathing rate well is how physically fit you are. So people who are deconditioned or aren't used to stressing themselves out, getting their core temperature up through hard rigorous training, um, <clears throat> their air consumption goes down quick. And also the ATP in your body gets burnt up rapidly. Mm -hmm. So and if you've never trained for that, um, you're not only are you mentally going to go through that quicker, but physiologically you are burning through your energy stores and your, um, your breathing rate so you're obviously your air supply um yeah so i mean there's just there's a whole lot of good that can come out like i said i can bore you for days on the research but it's it's out there um yeah we need to be more dedicated to our fitness for occupational athletes we need to act like it maybe we should just have you back on the uh, on that topic alone one <laughs> night yeah <laughs> i think that's I, I can think of at least three or four more topics to, to talk about uh with you josh and that's yeah, that's one of them um, there's, uh, I don't think it's the same thing, but, um, there's a study from, uh, I think it's just called stress in the fire service out of Indiana. Mm -hmm. Uh, hold on one second. Get my stress book out. Um, it sounds familiar. I might have this somewhere on my computer. Physiological stress associated with structural firefighting firefighting observed in professional firefighters out of the Indiana University Firefighter Health and Safety Research uh, Group. Um, they put heart monitors on firefighters in, I think, Illinois. Or, uh, mm -hmm. Sorry, hold on. Indy. Indiana, right? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to find what city they put their fire. Indianapolis, They're right in Indianapolis. Yeah, just um, like late '90s, early 2000s. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And and yep. they uh, so many cool things and good things that came out of that um, yeah, yeah. in regards to just the heart rate on the way to different types of calls and hearing different words and then the body's reaction in. Um, in our environments, in our working environments, and what are the hardest working environments within our working environments? Mm -hmm. There's it's a wealth of knowledge. Um, oh yeah, uh, yeah. And the w the way you were talking about training a little while ago, have you read uh, Training at the Speed of Life? No, you mentioned that book to me. I've heard it um, plenty of times. It's in the queue. I would have way. guessed that you would have read it already just by the way you were talking. Uh, about oh, cool. how the walk crawl, crawl run uh philosophy which mm -hmm. you know isn't it's it's not new to us you know it's, it's not it's not like it's brand new it's been out there for a long time 
but just the way you talk about it, it's, uh, it's very, you've already got a knowledge that book. It, it changed how I like, how I try and train, um, firefighters and how you're saying, you know, we need to match reality, but we need to do it in steps. You can't overwhelm the firefighter because you ha- they're, they're there to learn. And right. if they're not learning, if you're, all you're doing is overstressing them, then you're, you're basically telling them they're going to die on the fire. <laughs> right. And right. that's a negative imprint in and of itself. Absolutely. But, um, yeah, you've got a couple good books. Send them my way. I'm a book. I, yeah. yeah I, I think we have plenty of conversations in the future. Yeah, between, man. Yeah. Uh, the group of us. Um, the, uh, the show notes are going to be huge for this with all the books and papers to read <laughs> for these people. Yeah, yeah cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, look, man, we've been at it for about two hours now. Um, yeah. I, I say, uh, we, I think there's a lot more topics that we can, we can go down and, and dive into, but I think we save those for, uh, the future. Mm-hmm. I know, um, I definitely want to get you back on here and talk about, the after uh, the aftermath and just give your I mean there's not a lot of people willing to talk about that and I think it's really important that we share that with the fire service because there are only a few people that have that experience every year and 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 have to go through the after effects of a line of duty death and what that does to you as an individual on the fire ground you in your relationship with your families and your friends and um at the end of the day all of our goals are to get through the job get you know get home every morning do our job well and then have a good retirement when when it's time to hang up the helmet and enjoy a full life and um the mental stress involved in the fire services is high and Mm -hmm. if we don't have good ways to release it or understand what's happening in our own bodies and minds, um, it, it ends in a bad way. Sure. So I think it'd be really good to get you back on to talk about that. Um, if you're willing to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not something talked about and outside of a, a few close people that, um, you may only get bits and pieces of it. Um, and I kind of, yeah, I kind of shed some light on it in the, in the presentation, but, um, yeah, no, I'd be honored to, it's, it's cool. It's something people don't think about. And, um, it changes you. So um, it's been an honor to talk to you guys. I can't thank you enough for having me on here and, and for you guys to put out the good word with what you're doing. So um, it'd be an honor to come back. Yeah. I'd awesome. appreciate, that. appreciate it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Look, man, this was, sorry, go ahead, Ron. This was one of our original goals with the whole podcast was like to get some hard, real lifetime uh, situations you know, presented. Uh, we don't, the fire service doesn't talk about hard stuff. And yeah. uh, sometimes we need to, we need to talk about that hard stuff, like you said. And uh, you know, you're the first to help us out and, and start paving this pathway. So it's really an honor and appreciated to hear your side of the story, um, to hear your, some of your crew's side of the story and uh, that you were open to come out here and, and really just discuss it flat out. You know, that's huge. You know, we can't say thank you enough. So I, I hope, like he's, uh, James, uh, Jim has said, we get you back on sooner than later. Um, I know we have a list to go through, um, <laughs> but uh, definitely looking forward to talking to you more, man. No, definitely. I'm here.
Yeah, and and I'm just you know I second everything Ron just said. It's uh it's been an honor to have you on here, and thank you for your your time and your your uh, sharing you know everything that you've shared with us and anyone who ends up listening to this. Um, and yeah, I guess that's that's about it. Um, yeah, kind of. Well. No, this is awesome. Cool. You, uh, yeah. yeah, I started listening to you guys just a couple of weeks ago before I even met you. And it's cool to be sitting on this side of the, uh, the <laughs> podcast now. So like I said, it's an honor, but yeah, thank you. And definitely looking forward to future opportunities. Appreciate awesome. it. Awesome. Well, um, straight from, uh, it's not anything that what we made up. Um, but, uh, I hate when people say, uh, be safe, uh, <laughs> be safe out there. Right. Um, I like, uh, I've heard a bunch of different people say this, so we, we, we definitely have not put this together ourselves, but I like the be hard to kill. It's, like um, it. It, it, it entails ownership of your actions, right? Be the hardest person on the fire ground to, to, uh, to get dead. Um, and then to me means we're training hard. We're having these hard discussions and that's how I will like to end. Uh, you know, when I say goodbye to somebody, be hard to kill out there. I love it. Cool. All right, fellas. Well, Enjoy the day. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. We'll catch up with you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by liking and following Prepare for Rescue on Facebook and Instagram, Adapt and Overcome Training on Facebook and Instagram, Rit Ops on Instagram, and of course, join the Rit Nerds group on Facebook groups. Thanks and have a good day.